is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On the podcast this week, we talk to presenter of Channel 4's Grand Designs, Kevin McLeod, about his Jaguars. We learn about the website helping us to plan a car-friendly holiday, plus another memory from Richard West and your technical questions answered. JECpodcast.com Hello, welcome along to the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Hope you're keeping safe and well on the week that we learned that the year 2020 would not have the Goodwood revival happening within it. Amazing. Just another reminder of the unprecedented times that we're in at the moment. Of course, you can keep up to date with all of the information on events that you need via our website at jc.org.uk. But I know some of you have been getting out and about in your Jaguars recently. And a special hello to whoever it was who blasted past me <laughs> on the A43 near Northampton last weekend in a black XK120 with a white roundel on the door. What a beast. It looked amazing, and it was fantastic to see you come crackling past, hear that XK engine running, and also thumbs up for having the roof down in what looked like quite a chilly rainstorm. It was great to see. It really was. And perhaps that's you as well. Perhaps you've been getting your Jaguar out at long last and just using it a little bit, perhaps for those essential journeys. Don't forget to keep in touch with us and tell us all about your car and your stories here on the JEC Podcast. You can get in touch with us really easy via jecpodcast.com. Just use the contact form there or even better, use the voice recorder and we'll put you on the show. Also, don't forget, we're still running the Virtual Jaguar Festival at jcpodcast.com and you can join us on there by uploading a picture to the show field using the form online. You can also watch videos from past summer Jaguar festivals on there, plus news soon of our virtual Concourse d'Elegance. There have been a number of entries to this already. I've had a sneaky peek for you, and there are some gorgeous cars entered. So it will open for public voting very soon. Just keep your eye on the Friday Spotlight emails for the announcement of when you can start to cast your vote. It's all very exciting. And talking of amazing cars, don't forget you can win a 2014 model 5-litre V8 Jaguar XK, and not only that, it's just £2 a ticket and all proceeds are going to a really worthy charity, the Haemophilia Society. And charities have really struggled with raising money during COVID-19. So if you can, do please buy as many tickets as you can afford. The car is Italian Racing Red. It's got just 35,000 miles on the clock. You want it. It's the car of your dreams, really. And you can buy your raffle tickets online via the club shop now at jc.org.uk. only thing I would say is don't try using a credit card. Debit cards only, please. It's the rules. Lottery commission stuff. Not us. jc.org.uk. Visit the club shop. Well, next on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we're going to talk about holidays and travel and trips abroad and all of those things that we're all dreaming about at the moment, but actually can't quite do. I thought it'd be nice just to sit back and plan for the future for when lockdowns are lifted and we can all travel and move freely once again and take our Jaguars on fantastic journeys. And one of the things that 
if you're a Jaguar fan, you'll be well aware of is that when you're planning your holidays, your trips abroad, or even in this country, it's really important to make sure that the venue that you're staying at, the accommodation that you have is somewhere suitable to leave your pride and joy. Now, one company has the solution for this. They're called Petrol Heads Welcome. They're the Jaguar Enthusiast Club partners. And I've got Andrew from Petrol Heads Welcome on the podcast now. Hi, yeah, how you doing? Hi Wayne, I'm doing splendidly, thank you, albeit a bit more pursuit than usual. Indeed. Explain to us firstly then how Petrol Heads Welcome works, what the premise was behind it for you when you started it, and how we sign up, how we use it, how it all works. Yeah, sure. Well, we, like you, and presumably like lots of other people, are Petrol Heads ourselves. Um, and um, we, we like to use that, I say we, there's five of us involved, two married couples and one other, and the one other is a techie. And um, we, we, we like to go on holiday and, you know, just, just as a group of four or, you know, just on our own or whatever. And um, we plan holidays, you know, driving around the UK and, you know, around Europe and stuff and dropping on, uh, you know, museums and car meets, that kind of thing. Um, but if, you, if you've ever planned, a, you know, a tour or even just an overnight or somewhere, you go on, on websites of hotels and stuff and they, they rarely tell you anything about their car park. So, you know, we don't, in fact, one, one of us has done exactly this, you know, booked a hotel on, on bookings.com or something and, you know, turned up in a car and found that the, 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 the angle of the, um, of the car park entrance was, was, was so steep that the car couldn't get down there without grounding. Uh, and, you, and you've seen, you know, the efforts of top gear guys to stick blocks of wood underneath cars. Well, you know, one of us has had to do exactly that. So, so we, we planned a European tour a couple of years back and, and it was a 10-country, a two-week you know, blast through Europe. We took in the Mille Miglia and the Ferrari factory, the Ducati factory, um, and, and loads of other stuff. Mercedes Benz and Porsche Museum, and um, and it took us well, it took us a full day to organise all the places we want to stay because we'd go on Bookings.com, we'd look at you know what hotels were in our price range, and then we'd go on Google Earth to have a look at you know did it have our car park that we could see, and if we couldn't, we'd move down the next hotel and keep doing that till eventually we found something we liked to look on. And we thought, blimey, you know, this, is, this is taking a ridiculous amount of time. Why does nobody ever tell you what it, you know, what car parks are like and so on? So, um, and then we thought, well, we, you know, having done this, we should share this information with our with our car club friends. And, and then we thought, hang on a minute, you know, everybody who drives a drives a car with his old, new, classic, low, fast, whatever, you know, if you if you, if you love your car, then uh, you want to take it places that uh, that you know it's going to be, you know, suitable. I, I always start from the premise that uh, you know, if my car's happy, then I'm happy. So. Um, and then we thought, well, if we share this information, let's stick it on a website. And that's where petrolheadswelcome.com was born, so that people can go and have a look and not only see the places we've been to, but you can join it for free and you can use it for free. And you can recommend places that you've been to and then we'll add them to the site and then you can go and you know, rate them and so on and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what we don't do is ask people to rate, you know, the food and the bedroom and all that kind of thing, because, you know, TripAdvisor will do that. We just want to know, you know how good is the car park? So... If my car's happy, I'm happy. You've built kind of a community around Petrol Heads Welcome, and it's something that people can join and share their own experiences and, and add their own places that may be not listed yet and contribute to it and grow it as part of a community contributing to it of people that have had experiences around the country. That's a really nice way of approaching it. Exactly. You know, we've got, we've got I, mean, I mentioned hotels, we've got B&Bs, we've got, um, you know, Jeets in France and, and self-catering accommodation, but we've, we've also got loads of museums and car meets and stuff on there and, you know, and sort of, um, in fact, we loaded one only this week, a car, you know, a car museum up north somewhere that I've never heard of. 
and a local B&B said, oh, you know, we want to be on your site, please. Thank you very much. And then he said, do you know, there's, there's a little car museum. It's, it's called the Morgan Museum. Um, and it's, it's some, some guy that owns a few, you know, the really old three-wheeler Morgans and loads of other memorabilia. And it's a little private museum. Well, we had no idea that was on there. So it's now on our site. And, uh, you know, and then those guys are engaged with us, which is great. So next time we're in that area, we'll drop in and have a look and break the journey up and, you know that's that's what enjoying our cars is all about isn't it absolutely and and i suppose it's a really good thing for hoteliers and for venues and for people who are packaging up holidays because it enables them to reach this audience and they're able to then talk about the fact that they've got something quite unique and that is it's welcoming for petrol heads and good place for your car are you starting to attract more people from the tourism industry in who want to use that as a differentiating factor in their market yeah you're right we are because um we didn't realize until we you know we got this thing going really that um that most of well from what i can tell most of the sort of hotelier tourism industry they don't target petrol heads i mean we we're obviously familiar with the guys who run car tours and you know they have their their networks of hotels and, and that, that's quite a you know well-established business but your average b&b and small hotel around the country you know, they they generally target holiday makers. They don't target petrol heads. So in many cases, you know, people like us are a new audience for them. And of course, you know, you, you think about your average, certainly your average classic car owner, they're generally, you know, a, a little bit older. They've probably got no children. They may well be retired and they've got, you know, a bit of spare time. So they can drop in and have a two or three night break midweek, you know, outside of school holidays, which is exactly the kind of people that, 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 you know, that, these, that these venues want to attract. So it's quite it's, it's quite symbolic in that way, but we hadn't we, had, we didn't really realise that you know we just wanted to make sure that car vent, the car owners knew how to find places that you know are either at least suitable for their car or in some cases are run by petrol heads, which is I mean, that's that's brilliant, isn't it? When you turn up somewhere and you've actually got a petrol head running the hotel and comes out you know greets you with a hose pipe and a rag, you know and. That's exactly what we want. <laughs> Absolutely. And you're a classic car owner yourself. You're um, a member of the Jake Enthusiast Club. You're in the scene. And I know that you've actually used some of these venues for your own holidays. So you sort of practice what you preach in a sense that you've gone out and tested some of these yourself, haven't you? Yeah, we have. And in fact, when we started... Um, we, we rated each of the venues with a bronze, silver, or gold rating. So the bronze ones, you know, have to have the minimum requirement of you know suitable parking, full stop. Um, but the gold ones, these are the ones that are run by petrol heads themselves. And when we started, it, we said, okay, it has to be somewhere that we, one of the five of us, have visited. Um, we because now the, the site's got so many venues on there, we can't really live up to that standard. So what we said is, the gold ones now. Um, are run by petrolheads, and either we've been there ourselves, or they've been recommended by petrolheads that, that we trust. So, for example, you know, if you recommend somewhere to us, well, we know you wouldn't recommend it without knowing you know, rating it on the same basis as, as we do. Um, and then the, the silver ones, if you like, in between, they're ones that are engaged with us. So, quite a lot of times, the, the proprietors who run the bronze venues don't necessarily engage with us, other than they've got the requirements for decent parking. The gold guys are, are petrolheads and, and are full on, and, and then the middle, sort of the middle ground, if you like, they're not particularly petrolheads, but they like what we're doing and, and they interact with us and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's, it's a slightly warmer welcome than bronze, if that makes sense. And perhaps an example would be, you know, if you we've got quite a few large you know large hotels not necessarily expensive ones but large hotels particularly if you go out towards um, um you know le mans places like that where you know your average receptionist doesn't know one car from another but but they've got a great car park 
um, as opposed to somewhere like, you know, the fat lamb up in Cumbria where, you know, Paul Bonsall there who runs that place, you know, he's a massive petrol head. Um, he has car clubs visiting left, right and centre. You know, he, he drives for sporting bears, you know, the charity and so on. You know, that's the kind of place where you know you're going to get a, a top dollar welcome because of the car you've turned up in uh, as much as anything else. It's amazing to see some of the packages that these are offering now because it's gone more than just having a really nice secure car park in a hotel some of these are actually offering like driving routes on on cue cards that you can pick up from reception and um tours of uh, you know local points of interest for those interested in cars they've really embraced the whole experience of once you get there stuff to do with the car as well some of them haven't they you know you, there's a great example of that if you go on to petroswelcome.com and, and look up bonds routes I'm, I'm pronouncing that very anglified, anglicised rather, um, <laughs> bond routes. Uh, they are uh, the English people, they're just put a jeet in the Dordogne in France, um, and they, they're petrolheads themselves, um, and they were fed up of going to jeets on holiday, and you know, where, where it's grandma's old furniture, and you have to take your own towels and all that. So they, they built their jeet up in a sort of um, boutique hotel style, you know, quality fittings and so on. But not only are they attracting petrolhead clients, but they're doing exactly what you've said. They've, they've drawn route maps for the local area. So if you want a half-day run, a full-day run, you know, a 20-minute jaunt out, they've highlighted how good the roads are. Uh, they've created little um, either, either you know, so A4 sheets for you know, a navigator to use, or you can even download them onto your phone and stick them on your sat-nav. You know, so I, I think you're absolutely right. Embracing it is exactly the word. So that, that's one particularly good example. But of course, when they when they said to us, "Oh, we'd like to be on your site. This is what we do." Blah blah blah. We thought, "Oh, this looks rather nice. Let's go." So we did. So I think they're on our site in March or April, and come October, we'd driven down there and had a look at them firsthand. And I'm yet to test that out for myself. That's a that's a destination I need to go to and to try out. Maybe we'll do a podcast with them from the actual venue when we're all allowed out. <laughs> Absolutely, and you and you'd be very welcome, as as I'm sure you realise. The travel industry is about to change probably beyond all recognition for the future andrew i wonder whether you have any thoughts on how that's going to change it was going to change beforehand of course we had all the restrictions and changes in in movements that were going to be brought to us by brexit and that's been kind of blown out the water by further restrictions that covid19 is going to impose upon us i guess certainly we'll see more staycations and more people holidaying in the uk but what other changes do you think we'll see over the next year or two I think you've probably nailed it there, actually. And uh, interesting, I, I see the word staycation now being used for staying in the UK, whereas I thought staycation was you know, staying at home. But anyway, there you go. Um, but I think I think you're right. That my suspicions are that when um, when this sort of lockdown business eases off somewhat, then smaller venues like B and Bs, and particularly self catering accommodations, where they've got a, you know a sort of an annex building or something. Um, they'll be, I think, much quicker to respond than you know, your big palatial hotel with a turnstile and lifts and all that kind of stuff. Because uh, in terms of social distancing, of course, you know, you can you could drive out there, you know, park outside the front door of your, I don't know, your little, you know, annexed B&B or sub-catering thing, um, you know, go in with your own key, spend a week in there, never see anybody else. You know, somebody can come and clean it after you've gone and maybe leave it empty for a week. I don't know how it might work. Um, you know, and then the next lot can come in. Whereas I think you, the, the big hotels with the, with the turnstiles and the, and the, you know, the lifts trying to keep two, two metres apart and so on and, you know, trying not to get too, too close to people in the bar. But I think that, 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 that to me, I think is going to be, people are going to feel more comfortable going to small venues with just themselves or another, you know, another couple in another car, perhaps than the, than the bigger tours. Um, I mean, I hope that's not the case. 
I don't know if you saw, there was a, something was in the, I think it was in the paper today, sir, and it might be a Japanese bar or something. They've, um, they've put a giant teddy or a giant panda at every other chair in, in their restaurant. So, <laughs> so even at tables of four, you know, couples have to sit diagonally over each other. But people on their own were saying, oh, this is great because I've, you know, I've, got, I've got somebody to look at at the table. And, and of course, it makes everything so, <laughs> so much easier. Oh, great idea. So, may, so may, maybe that's what the future will look like. Giant teddy bears and giant pandas. <laughs> we'll need some giant jaguars to put in all of the seats at the Summer Jaguar Festival, I think. That's what we're going to need. That's a great <laughs> idea. Maybe we should have you know, sort of giant, you know, blow up racing drivers or stuff. Stick them in the passenger seat <laughs> and sit them in the restaurant seat next to us when we get there. If we go to petrolheadswelcome.com, that's the website that we're talking about right now. And of course, uh, you're a partner with the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. When you arrive at petrolheadswelcome.com, what's the first thing we should do? Well, well, I think you probably sign up. It's free. It's free to use and it's, it's free to, to join uh, because once you've joined, it means you can then go and rate and comment on any of the venues on there. Um, and, I must, and I must add, it's, you know, we, we've, been, we've had great support from the, from the Jaguar Enthusiast Club and from Jaguar members. And in fact, uh, you know, one springs to mind immediately, which is, which is, which is a, a, a B&B called Petrolhead Pit Stop. Uh, and and that's run by some GC people that we met at Blenheim. Uh, was that last year or the year before? Gosh, I'm flying over on lockdown. Um, so that's run by JC people themselves. So it's a, you know, we're all helping each other out to get the most of our cars and hopefully get the most out of our holidays and our touring, as you said at the outset. Well, hopefully it won't be too much longer before Jaguars are heading off all over the place and using petrol heads welcome. When we do, we'll be flashing our lights and waving each other as we pass in the opposite direction, won't we? So uh, I look forward to that. We will indeed. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us and uh, all the best of luck with it. Thanks, Wayne, and you. Memories of motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Richard West shares with us his memories from a lifetime in motorsport. And this week he explains exactly how he got the nickname of Promo from Martin Brundle and the others from TWR. Back in episode five of our podcast, some of you actually rang me up afterwards and said, Martin referred to you as Promo. What was that all about? Do they still call you Promo? Um, Tom Walkinshaw loved to have nicknames for people, and luckily for me, mine wasn't too bad or too derogatory. Um, when I talked to Tom back in that late 88 period about joining TWR for 89 onwards, one of the things that Tom felt that was lacking in the Silk Cut Jaguar and Castrol Jaguar programs was sufficient promotional work uh, in order to bring the awareness of the team and its sponsors uh, in the, into the public domain. And within a matter of days of joining him in 89, he came into the office one day down at the estate at Kidlington and said, come on, Promo, let's go out and have a bit of lunch, you know, and we need to talk stuff through. And I said, what's the Promo thing? He said, you're running promotions. So from now on, he said, you're known as Promo. And it's a name that stuck. I mean, people within that TWR era, um, well, the politer ones anyway, uh, have always, always called me Promo. Martin's always done the same thing. I wished him a happy birthday on the 1st of June. And he said, thanks a lot, Promo. And the promotional requirement is very different to that of a commercial director with a team because heading up not just the racing programs for TWR Jaguar but also at that time Tom had uh, you know very successful chain of Jaguar dealerships also BMW he was heavily involved in the motor industry in all areas and all fronts and it was actually my task along with some very talented people there was um Fiona Miller, who joined us on the PR front, Andy King, who was my number two, uh, a guy called Gary Timms, who came in as our catering manager for looking after all of the feeding 
of the teams on the events, and Chris Lees, who ran and maintained our motorhome fleet. And we had a great group of guys and girls there, all under this promotional banner. And the purpose of that promotional wing under a company that we formed and named Communicate was to actually handle all elements of public relations, press relations, hospitality, sponsor uh, enhancement and sponsor programs in order to get greater awareness and of course even the branding down to how the cars looked and how the teams work so that was where the promo side came from with Tom and uh, the others that worked within the team and it was very successful as I've talked about briefly in, in, in some of the talks I've done around the regions we completely rebranded the team for late 89 1990 we put together some amazing promotions in fact you talked recently with me about the Jaguar versus Jaguar when we raced the aeroplane against the car all of those things came under the promotional headline but that's a very very different world when you become a commercial director and you're charged with finding money you're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast sharing the passion sharing the knowledge all your questions answered with the Jaguar model experts. Well, time once again on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast to get all of your technical questions answered. And joining us once again for his second time out with the team is Andy Waters from CBR Classic Restorations. Hi, Andy. Hi, Wayne. Good to uh, be asked back to join you. Thank you. How's your week been in the workshop? What have you been working on? Been a mixture, trying to uh, still get uh, customers' cars out. They uh, there might be a lockdown, but they still want them all back to at least polish them. But yeah, XK150 uh, that uh, come from abroad and a uh, Mark II Jaguar, along with a few other things. But they're uh, they're the ones that I've been tied up with, and an XK8 that's come in for a uh, service and uh, a few other alterations. Great to see people are busy getting their Jaguars ready for when uh, we're allowed out a little bit more than we are at the moment. And uh, we've got some of our listeners' questions to answer. And the first question came from Jeffrey Bacon, who did actually leave us a voice message on the voice recorder, which is the best way to get your question onto the podcast, by the way, if you're listening. Uh, but unfortunately, it was a bit muffled, Jeffrey. So uh, we've made our best guess at what you were saying, and I think we've got it just about right. Uh, Jeffrey was asking about his Jaguar X-Type. It's a 2.2 estate, a 2009 model. And he was saying that every 750 miles, the car goes into gearbox fail mode and the car slows down. He stops and starts the engine and then it clears itself for another 750 odd miles before it comes back again. Tom Robinson from Swallows Independent Jaguar. Have you got any ideas? So first things first, I don't think the 750 miles actually has any rele relevance to the issue. I think that's just coincidental. Now, first of all, we would highly recommend to give the vehicle a scan with either genuine Jaguar diagnostics or Autologic or something very similar to this. Now, it is very rarely this actual gearbox issue that causes this light. Now, often we see code stored in the ECU with this fault for engine torque signal, which means the gearbox isn't seeing the correct amount of torque expected from the engine which is why you get the gearbox fault before you get any engine management lights. Now, 99% of the time, it's either actually the EGR valve or turbo actuator sticking. Now, in my experience, normally the EGR valve doesn't actually log a code in the ECU, but the turbo actuator will. So from your description, I'll be pointing towards um, the EGR, um, but I would definitely recommend we check these items before you just go fitting them. 
Brilliant. Thanks, Tom. Uh, you must see a lot of X-types in that sort of position come through the workshops at Swallows Independent Jaguar. Yeah, we do. They're, they're a great car and they're really common and, and we have been caught out with this issue. So I'm fairly confident it will be what it is, but just make sure he does a few background checks first. I know you're busy because we talked to you and you're outside a, a rolling road somewhere. Is this all preparation for the motorsport season ahead? What's happening? Yeah, absolutely, Wayne. So um, we're with our friends over at PV Engineering in Chard, which is um, as you can probably hear from the phone, in the middle of nowhere on top of a hill with a dyno cell. So, yeah, we've finally got some race dates. So um, we've actually got my XJR6 down on the dyno, and we're just running in the rebuilt engine ready for the start of the season. So really exciting. It's finally moving. Great stuff. Well, we shall detain you no longer. Thanks once again, Tom. Great. Thanks, Wayne. Speak to you soon. Andy, we've got a question from an R. White. He's got an E-Type Series 1 4.2 and he says both the front and rear brakes are inoperative after a short run of, say, 10 miles or so when the engine is hot. There's no resistance as if there's air in the system and if he pumps the brakes, they then recover. The brake fluid's new. There's no visible leaks from the system and no fluid loss. Since both the rear and front brakes fail together, is there an issue with the brake master cylinder, or have you got any other ideas? Right, so the, the very interesting one. Uh, the uh, the first thing I'd say is obviously we haven't got the information as to if this is a newly built uh, restoration or if he's had the car for some time and this issue's just started. Uh, it does state that it's got new uh, new brake fluid. I would like to have known if uh, if it's a new resto, has he put silicon fluid in it? Uh, obviously, we haven't haven't got that information, so we're going to have to presume it's normal dot four and see if we can go from there. The again issue of is it a new resto uh, has the brake pipe been fed the right route to the reaction cylinder from the master cylinder the fact is saying it's when the engine's got hot could it be that it's got some sort of nice stainless exhaust manifolds and down pipes on it that are transferring the heat from them to the brake pipe and sort of boiling the fluid in those areas throwing those sort of ideas across if that's not something that's an issue and we'll presume the brake pipes laid the proper route the master cylinder for the uh, e-type feeds the reaction cylinder and that first movement on the reaction cylinder is where the pressure is created that allows it then to start applying the cylinder to push for the rear brakes Based on he's losing his rears, the pressure is definitely lost between that master cylinder and his reaction cylinder on the first sections of, of those. So his potential is that a seal has turned or letting go on either of those two items. It would be hard to establish which one at this point. The fact he's not losing fluid tells us it's the second seal on the shaft that's letting it past but he's not telling us if he's having to re-bleed them when he gets back home to overcome it or if when everything's cooled down is it then regaining its brake pedal normally so there's a few sort of anomalies that we haven't got the answers for there but presuming all the other little bits are correct it has got to be either the master cylinder 
or the first stage of the reaction cylinder that's gone. And what would you think would cause that? Is it just sheer wear and age in seals, or could he have used the wrong fluid, or what do you think? What's your best guess? Best guess, potential is he's uh, he's got silicon fluid in there and the seals just do not like it in the uh, material they're made of they do not like it on these uh, old cars okay well hopefully mr r white thank you for sending in your question that's given you a few clues as to where to look next and how to narrow down that problem next is amazingly another mark eight question and uh rare car these days but we've had two questions on two podcasts this one from mgb chris as he's calling himself on the jaguar enthusiast club instagram page and he asks andy what shape should the heater control rod be on a jaguar mark 8 right um the heater control rod should basically be straight uh with a ball effect on both ends with sort of a couple of ears on its stroke a pin through the middle whichever way you want to describe it or look at it and uh, yeah it sort of becomes a sort of knee joint in uh, the way it moves around in operation but yeah the rod itself should be straight i'm afraid i haven't got an exact length of what it should be that's one dimension that eludes me but uh, but yeah straight is the answer for that one Presumably he's asking this question because there are several out there that he could buy by mistake. Is, is that right? The item should be available, but I'm working on that potentially he's not got it. He's putting a car back together. He hasn't got it, and he's looking at the fact that the line of sight, shall we say, is uh, out of line to the other one, and that's why it's got the ball effect each end so that it can do this manoeuvre uh, when he, when he's turning the heater knob. It's the ball effect that allows it to move to control it at these two different levels. Okay, great stuff. Well, thank you again for all of your questions. Keep them coming in. JECpodcast.com is the place to go. You can use the contact form on the website there. Or, of course, even better, because we like to hear from you on the podcast, leave us a voice message using the voice recorder on there, and we'll put your questions to our panel of technical Jaguar experts, Andy Waters, Tom Robinson, and David Marks. Uh, Thank you to all three of you for your input this week, and uh, thanks, Andy. What are you working on for the rest of today thank you well i'm carrying on with the uh, mark two that we're uh, pushing to uh, try and get out the door and the customer will be glad to hear that andy have a great weekend and thanks once again and yourself sir. you're listening to the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast join the jaguar enthusiasts club now at jec.org.uk this week on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we're joined by a Jaguar fan who is a household name, having spent more than two decades on our television screens presenting grand designs on Channel 4. It's Kevin McLeod, of course. Kevin, welcome along. Thank you. Uh, yes, it's more than two decades. It's actually started in 1997, so we're almost kind of, you know, before we know it, it'll be 25 years, yeah. Did you ever imagine that show would be with us for so long when you started all those years ago? Not in the least, because most people in television ha- have careers that last six months, you know, and then you, your contract expires and that's it. And do you know what? And I still make programmes. Uh, I mean, I did a, you know, did a thing called Rough Guide to the Future. Uh, I, I'm currently just 
planning a sort of classic car idea. It's in, in its early developmental stages. And every time you do an idea, you hope that it's going to get a repeat commission. And then it doesn't get a repeat commission and it doesn't surprise you uh, because that's how television works. So for actually for Grand Designs to keep going, it's like a miracle. It's, it's a sort of slap me, wake me up, you know, because I, I can't quite believe it's... I mean, I still enjoy it. I still love doing it. How did it all begin, actually, Grand Designs? Because you were there doing the job and then you ended up on TV doing the job. How did that all take place? Well, I, I had a design business and manufacturing business and design studio attached and oh, somebody asked me to go and talk about furniture or lighting or whatever it was on, on a couple of programs and I did that and then I did a bit more. This is how people get to work in television. They just go and do a little bit of unpaid contribution work. You know? And then somebody said to me, well, would you present and talk to camera? Just try that and I did. And then this is all in the early 90s, you know. And, uh, and then eventually a, an editor said to me, oh, I'm leaving the BBC and I've got this idea and I think you'd be good to do it and would you audition? And, and, and I, I, I did. And, and again, you know, started filming with my producer, John, on location and we sort of made it up. I mean, we sort of felt our way as we went along. We didn't have much in the way of scripts and, uh, and uh, we pretty well, I, I used to write my pieces to camera down and, and after a year or so, we, I stopped doing that because I, I, we kind of figured out that actually what it needed was a far less contrived and controlled um, style of filming, which at the time, in, you know, over two decades ago was unusual because at that time everything was very controlled. You had lots of makeover programs, lots of quite exploitative television, life swap where people would swap their lives and the cameras would, you know, take the piss out of them. And, and, and this wasn't at all exploitative. This was celebratory television that other directors and producers who I met, you know, were kind of skeptical of because they, it was almost as though we were conniving with reality. We were conniving with people and, and, and rather than criticizing them. And I find that really interesting. So the work we do behind the scenes to, to, to uh, find the projects is really important because it's really important that we find projects that we can celebrate, that we do like, that we think are exemplary. Because I kind of think, well, why bother wasting your life doing stuff which is, you know, crap. I mean, trying to sort of promote stuff or talk about stuff which is awful. So I... Um, from the start, we're interested. The stories have got to be interesting, and the projects have got to be interesting, and um, that's been a sort of guiding principle for us. And I suspect that's why it sort of lasted so long. But the the whole kind of you know the sort of energy of positivity, if you like, through the series has was something that we kind of we hit on very early in the almost in the first program. Television's changed alongside Grand Designs. I mean, you know, it carries on doing what it does, uh, 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 but you know, luckily that that kind of cynical side to, to, to mainstream evening programs has, has kind of evaporated over the years. So I'm kind of rather pleased about that. And it's, it's not an easy program to make, I imagine, because you have to follow a story over such a long period of time. You know, TV shows now are used to going in, doing a story, quick, get it recorded, edited, bang, straight out. Whereas that takes a long time to build the story. Sometimes a couple of years they're building those houses. How long is six years? You must feel like you've become part of their families when you're presenting certain stories. I've only been invited to one wedding. <laughs> I, I think it's more like, I'm more like the family solicitor or the family therapist. <laughs> It's important, you know, I say we celebrate and of course we're on their side to an extent we are, but really I'm on the viewer's side. And really our job is to interpret and to, and to question and to give them quite a tough time sometimes. But always 
with affection and support, you know, it, it, but, but nevertheless, you know, if, if somebody produces a piece of work which is not what they intended, which is not true to their original ambition, then we've got to take the task about, about that. And I'm quite interested in the psychology of people going through this experience. And I'm quite interested in why people spend so much money on sofas and taps and, and why they think material things are, are so important. And, and I'm quite interested in the, in the philosophy of, of life that people bring, you know, whether it's about sustainability and, uh, you know, off-grid living or, or whether or not they're bringing a, a kind of pure design approach. And, and so the, these... You know, it's not so much the physicality of watching a building go up, which frankly, you know, is very often the same. Um, you know, it's more men and women hammering nails into bits of wood. Um, it's, the, it's the ideas behind uh, the, the, the projects which make it tick, you know, which make it interesting. But I, I don't ever emerge, you know, best friends with many of them. Two or three I've got to know really well which are, over the course of you know, 20 years and, and nearly 200 projects, that's not many, I suppose. I suppose they, there is a common theme between the type of person that, instead of going out and buying a house that is there for them, ready to go, goes and builds their own in their own vision, it's very similar to the same kind of guys that instead of going out and buying a classic car that is built and finished, ready to use, go and rebuild something with a tree growing out of it. Do you think there is a common psychology in that type of person? I, I have rebuilt a house with a tree growing out of it. <laughs> and I have also rebuilt a car. I'm rebuilding a car at the moment, which had a tree growing out of it, which was in a pond. Uh, so, um, you know, the, yeah, the parallels are very obvious. And often I say to people, you know, uh, you wouldn't build um, a prototype car in the middle of a muddy field in the rain. Um, so why do that with a house? Uh, yeah, the parallels are quite interesting between the two. The two, and and for me, in a way, I think actually, the whole process of repairing and restoring cars is um, actually I, I I align it much more closely with finding an old building and repairing and restoring an old building uh, rather than new build. And um, I think that the process is kind of it's compelling. And it's, uh, it's partly about involvement, physicality, uh, and, and learning skills and trades and so on. It's partly about bringing something to life. And it's partly about story and narrative and the imagination. Because that's, you know, what's driving us all the time when we, when we buy and fall in love with an old house. It's exactly, the, in my view, it's exactly the same emotional response as, as when we fall in love with a, a beautiful old, old car. Mm. And the ability, I guess, everyone wants to express themselves and everyone wants to put their own personality and say something, make a statement about who they are and building something and, and changing it. Even if you're restoring something that was, that's old and needs preserving, you always do just put your little bit on it, don't you? And it's, it's just human nature, I guess, to express yourself. I absolutely agree. Uh, and, you know, you might take a colour of a car and say, well, I know it was it, this factory spec was this, but I love that color blue and I want to, you know, do, do that, whatever. And so people do personalize it and they personalize it in lots of ways, of course. Some people chrome the engine, you know. Um, but I think uh, what really interests me is when people bring their own philosophy uh, to uh, 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 say, so you can take, for example, building conservation philosophy and you can apply it to a car. Um, and I, I'm, I'll give you an example here uh, that I've, I've, I've um, cause I'm, I'm very, I'm, I, I, I sort of trained as a building conservationist. I trained in, 
in how to look after old buildings and what, you know, history means and the narrative importance of history, the storytelling, the imagination, all that, you know. So for me, what really matters is to understand not just what the car is and what it's going to be, but what it was and where it's come from. And I've just spent um, 18 months uh, trying to find the original registration of a car in 1931. And it, I did it in the end with a lot of help from a lot of great people. And it means now I can register the car on that original plate. Now that to me, I mean, that may seem obsessive. Um, and in fact, I've got the plate over in the corner there. The, the point about it is I've actually, I've, I found a font which was being used in the 1930s on registration plates, which is, you know, legitimate and correct and DVLA compliant. And the letters are all spaced accordingly. And I kind of, t to the extent that I wanted that font on the plate, and there is a company, uh, Tippers, who have made plates in that font. It's called a Gothic font of the time. It's very similar to Gil Sands, but it's not. And, um, but they haven't got it. They haven't got the, the, the cast aluminium letters anymore. And uh, they, I don't think they're getting them in for a while. So I, I, in the end, I went my own route and had the plates made up in Germany, bizarrely. But look, the point being, and I, I, this is the trouble about becoming obsessive, is that you end up going down this kind of ridiculous <laughs> nerdy wormhole, which I've just done. <laughs> that's what we do here on the JC podcast. That's, that's our whole format. <laughs> what am I doing talking about <laughs> typefaces? <laughs> We're talking about cars, but that's, you know, for me, that, 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 that's the inevitability of taking, you know, an approach. And um, before now, I, you know, I'm, I'm very particular about the stuff that sometimes that people don't get right, you know, like carpets. People think, oh, I'll just put a nice wall carpet in there, I'll go down to that trimmers and get them to do whatever, or I'll order something online. And I, I found, you know, that Italian cars of the early 1960s used a, a, a very small company in Italy who, who are, are sort of not going anymore, really. And, um, and, and they would make these very thick cornrow carpets which were very beautiful and put into the cars of the time and, and and the only way of course to to reproduce that was to actually have the carpet remade exactly you know and and i found an amazing italian guy called andrea maelli who's a he's got a trimming business but he has carpet weavers and does the whole thing properly and uh and it's amazing when you kind of find do you know what i mean when you find great people who care as much as you do about about a detail which which, you know, perhaps somebody else doesn't take an interest in. I mean, I don't really take an interest in other things. I'm not really bothered about, I don't know, you know, the period correctness of, a, of an alternator. Do you know what I mean? Uh, that's just, I, I think it depends on where you focus your, 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 your energies. And for me, it's not always about mechanical 100% correctness, but it, although it, that does matter. I think it's often also really, for me, it's about the imagination, about the story. So if the car has a history or a use um, that, you know, and it bears the marks of that use, if it's been rallied and it's been knocked about a bit, I think it's a shame to knock all the dings out. It's a shame to replace all the chrome because actually it's, it's, it, 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 it wears its armour, you know, with all those dents and dings, you know, and it's battle scarred and it's, it's a proud victor. It's still here, you know, so... We should celebrate. We should celebrate, I think, the um, imperfections as much as the perfections. And we should respect the history and the story as much as, as, in, as putting our own spin on things, you know. Yeah. 
I think that's classic cars summed up really. It's very nice to go into a museum and see a classic Jaguar that came out the factory, was never used or driven and is preserved just as it was built. But there's that moment when a, a, a lump of metal becomes human, becomes emotional, has memories attached to it. And that's what classic cars are really. It's people reliving youth or reliving memories and it, it makes it something more, doesn't it? Oh, completely. I mean, I can remember the first XJ6 I ever saw and I now own a XJ Coupe and the reason it, I do is because, because that car made such an impression when I was 11 or something. Yeah. or 12 and uh you're absolutely right and there's room for everything you know so there's room for the kind of um american souped up kind of you know hot rodded thing there's room for the kind of wide wheel arch twr uh you know racing jags there's room for the beautifully conserved stuff for the low mileage kind of factory pristine thing that nobody ever dare drive yeah, of course there is. And, and everybody's approach is different. And, 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 and we're lucky enough in this country to have a really thriving classic car culture, which means that you've got enough vehicles to go around for people to do different stuff too. I think what's the great mistake is that we all get seduced by the idea that we have to produce the concourse car that will, um, that the, the, the retailers and the showrooms and the dealers think we should be doing. You know, it's better to take a car apart, put it together again with new nuts and bolts throughout, you know, strip everything, repaint, new finish, new everything, new everything. And you build effectively a new car. And that's what the dealer's like, because it, it, it says to the new owner, look, this car is infallible. It went rusted. So, you know, but, yeah, but it, you've stripped everything away that makes the car kind of interesting in a way. We all get seduced, don't we? We get seduced by the shiny thing. We get seduced by shiny buildings and we get seduced by shiny sweet wrappers uh, and by shiny cars. And, and as far as I can see, um, looking at the architecture of the world is that, that um, individuals, uh, communities, uh, governments and, and, and heads of state are all just as vulnerable here. We are all vulnerable to being seduced by glitzy baubles it's great to hear you talk so passionately about cars i wonder where that love comes from kevin where 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 did you first get so interested in cars and engineering my dad who was an engineer and a scientist and we spent he wasn't an owner of great classics he could never afford anything like that um but all the cars we had as growing up were cars that i kind of i'm i'm sort of trying to sort of in a way, sort of revisit in my life in one way or another. We had a Wolseley 610. We had an Austin Maxi, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, Vauxhall Vivas. Uh, I had a Bond 875 three-wheeler. That was my oh. first car. Austin 1100, um, Vauxhall Victors. You know, all standard cars from the 1960s. And, uh, and family friends had Ford Anglias and consoles and, you know, Granadas and what have you. And... I, I just, um, you know, I, I, if, you, if you ask me to think of a Mark 4 Cortina, I think of it driving up and down the street I grew up in, you know, because there was one parked up the hill. There was, uh, so I, I, for me, engineering, repairing, uh, doing up a car, taking a gearbox to bits, not being able to put it back together again, that just puts me back in touch with my dad. That's all it does. It's about trying to uh, kind of reach back into my own childhood and discover their innocence, really. And it is romantic. It's, it's hugely romantic, of course. You know, driving a car 
that is from the past and, and you know, making you know, physical contact, that emotional and physical contact with it, experiencing the sound of it, you know, because of course a car is an, an amazing, kinetic, moving, um, multidimensional object. It doesn't just sit there. It's, it moves through space. It makes a noise. It has a heartbeat, a vibration, and, uh, and it, it connects to you physically through that vibration. So we kind of, I think, as, 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 uh, as animals, we kind of respond to those vibrations and that, those noises and the experience and the controls. And compared to driving a modern car, of course, they're very, very, each one is different from each other. Nothing's perfect, but they offer individual characteristics. They're as flawed and as beautiful as human beings themselves. And I think that's what gives them their, um, their personalities and their, um, their complete attraction. So it is quite possible, isn't it, to fall in love with a car. Um, not many approaching 50% of the population on the planet don't understand that. For me, it's certainly to do with my father. Mm. And he had an amazing job, didn't he, actually? He was something to do with rocket engines, wasn't it? Tell us more about that. Well, he was a test systems engineer for British Aircraft Corporation, which then became British Aerospace, and they made satellites and they made rockets and they, they were involved with the Blue Streak uh, rocket program, which was Britain's rocket program, which was incredibly successful, putting satellites into orbit. Um, uh, and he would... We lived in Bedfordshire, and he would go off to Aylesbury to the, he worked at Stevenage, but we'd go off to Aylesbury to the, um, I think it was called the Rocket Research Establishment, and test stuff. So, you know, go off to Scotland and, and French Guyana and put a, rock, put a rocket up in the air and, uh, and, and hope it wouldn't explode, or, or sometimes make them deliberately explode in order to understand, you know, uh, what went wrong. So, he, he, yeah, he had a, a great... A real kind of, um, you know, it's a kind of, if you were a boy and you wanted to be an engineer, it's the kind of job you'd like as an engineer. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I, I didn't want to be an engineer, um, but I, 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 funny enough, for a program about 15 years ago, I went back to the test laboratories at Stevenage, which um, he used. And these were amazing labs. Um, I say they were labs. They were actually hangars and they were insulated and they still exist they're 1950s buildings that have been wrapped in modern tin sheds. And indeed, the whole 1950s, 60s site of British aerospace has now been changed, gone. But apart from these buildings, and you can go in, you literally walk in a, a modern tin building, and behind that, there's a 1950s brick wall, and you go into that through a steel door. And between these uh, hangars, these large volumes, there are big insulated doors. And what it meant was they could take a tank or a, uh, a Land Rover, with a, um, a, a rapier missile uh, guided weapon uh, delivery trailer on the back of it with the rockets. And they could take that vehicle to minus 40 simulating Arctic conditions. And then they could take it to tropical conditions in the next hangar. And then they could take it to desert conditions in the next hangar. They could do all of this within 15 minutes, moving from one space to another in order to stress the electronics to understand what might break, what might crack, you know. You, you alluded to your first memory of a Jaguar there. How did the love of Jaguars come about? And you're going to have to tell us what that number plate is off in a moment as well. This number plate is off a Jaguar. Although you wouldn't know it because it's a 1931 car. And if you know your Jaguar history, you know that in 1931, Jaguar didn't exist. But they did as Swallow sidecars. They worked with Wolseley to body the Wolseley Hornet when that was first produced in 1931. They did two versions. They did a, um, a small um, saloon 
and they did a coupe. And I've got a 1931 Wolseley coupe Hornet, uh, which I don't have a model of because they haven't, no one's made a model of it. Um, uh, 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 it's called a beetle bodied. It's got a beautiful kind of swept tail. And um, I bought mine at auction. It'd been restored in Holland and then I lived in Belgium and came to the UK with not enough paperwork. And I sort of slowly uh, repaired and restored that. And I, I did actually write to the Jaguar Heritage Trust to try and find more out about the car, but they have very few records from the uh, Swallow Sidecars days. So yeah, that's my, my, it's my oldest car and it's, um, it's a beauty, a little beauty. And it's ironically because of lockdown, it hasn't ever been out on the road in the UK. Um, so I'm really looking forward to having worked on the engine got it up together with my mate Mike. Um, uh, I'm really looking for, I haven't got these plates on yet, so at the moment I get the plates on, we can take it out. I'm gonna brag here, I've got four Jaguars, one of which is roadworthy, and the other <laughs> one is about to be. So I've got the, I've got, I've got the coupe I talked about, the XJ6 coupe 4.2 from 1976, which I adore. I think Jay Leno calls it the, the, the coolest car in the world when the windows are down, yes. which it is. Uh, it's it's less it, it, it's it's less cool when you can't get the windows back up and it starts to rain. But it releases your inner John Steed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, John Steed had the big kind of um, he had a version with big flared arches, didn't he? I had a broad speed one later on. That's true. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. And I took it back to Jaguar last summer. Uh, I went to see Ian Callum before he um, uh, left Jag uh, a couple of weeks before he was retiring. And we parted up and Ian came out. I didn't realise he's got one too. So he, we, we had a kind of huge conversation about, and all his design team, of course, were all over it. And it's wonderful when you have kind of 20, 20, 30 year olds, you know, who are working on brand new cars, you know, with very modern technologies and, 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 they're, and they're pouring over this kind of rust bucket with, you know, um, slightly damp carpets in the footwell and, you know, and, 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 and an oily engine underneath the bonnet. So it's, it's kind of, for them, it's a kind of, they're making contact with, some, with the kind of the DNA of the company, which I think is, is, is really powerful. Yeah, that's a, that's a great kind. I love it. And it's a proper four-seater, despite the fact it's a two-door coupe. So yeah, that, that, that's been actually um, all over Europe, that car. Um, it's a tremendously functional car with a massive boot as well. So yes. really, really useful functional yes. car. Uh, I've got two E-types. One's a two plus two, which is in pieces, and it's a sort of donor car, really. And I've got uh, an E-Type I bought at auction. It's a project for like three years' time. It's, I've always loved those cars. And, you know, just even hanging on to a, a pile of corrosion sitting in a garage under a, you know, with, with, no, with no wheels on it, on, on bricks. It's, even that is, is kind of still exciting to know that, you know, I own a, an E-Type. On next week's podcast, we'll find out more about the Jaguars that Kevin owns. He and I will get really geeky about automotive design. And also, I approach a slightly difficult question on how he juggles his life with classic cars with his support for green campaigns, with a rather insightful and surprising answer. It's all still to come on the next episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to get in touch and send us your questions via jecpodcast.com. Use the voice recorder on there preferably, or of course, you can use the contact form as well. You can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club really easily online at jecpodcast.com. Just click the Join Us button to ensure that you get the latest copy of Jaguar Enthusiast magazine and access to literally hundreds of pounds worth of member discounts and benefits. 
Till our next podcast, see ya. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.